a podcast about amazing people from an incredible state. Amazing Arizonans with Mike Broomhead. I've gotten to know the Hoopers, uh, Stephen Linda Hooper, uh, become friends of mine. Most of your story isn't from Arizona, but the stories are as compelling as they can be. So let's start with you, Linda. How many years did you spend with the FBI? 21. 21. And Steve, how many? Uh, 30. All right. So I want to get into a couple of the stories because when we would sit around and talk, you would start telling stories and I would sit there with my mouth open. Let's start with the D.C. sniper story and how involved you were in that case and what ended up happening. I think we all remember that case. Let's hear it. Well, it it started um, in our area with a shooting at a liquor store, and um, then it, it followed up with additional shootings. The FBI was not involved. It was a totally local um, case. The FBI went to Montgomery County and to see if they needed assistance, and they did. So we set up a command post. We rented space. We put in computers. We wired everything. It was crazy. We did it like overnight, got furniture delivered, and uh, put together a huge task force. Um, as the shootings continued, we just we had a tip line. Tips came in. Tips were coming in by the hundreds every day. Every single tip that came in, we had to follow up on. It didn't, it didn't matter what it was. We had to send agents out there to follow up on it. So <clears throat> there wasn't a lot of investigation actually going on other than following these tips. And the chances of solving a case that way are, are not real good. Okay. So um, the, our boss, the special agent in charge of the FBI, came to me. Um, my background at that time was in drugs. I ran a, a drug squad in um, a Haida area of the of the county, and <clears throat> asked me if I would choose whatever agents I wanted in the division and put together an investigative team. So I basically mm-hmm. just took the guys that already worked for me. I had it was all males and one female. She was a um, former captain in the Marines. So you got to pick the best agents you thought you could handle this kind of work. I yeah, I picked the agents. But you weren't one of them. <laughs> I picked the agents that headquarters. <laughs> I picked the agents that worked for me because I knew them best. Right. And I, I knew what they could do. And we just had a, a different mindset because of working drugs. Um, and so that that's how we started. And <clears throat> we sent out a, a communication across the country to every police department to find out if anybody had had any sort of shooting that was similar to what we were experiencing. And we got an answer back from Montgomery, Alabama, that they, in fact, had had a shooting, a couple shootings. One was outside of a liquor store, which is how ours started, and that um, uh, two women were shot and that the police were in earshot. They actually heard the shots, so they were there in a matter of seconds to this parking lot. And when they arrived, they saw a young um, black male running across the parking lot which isn't unusual. Shots fired, people usually run away. So, Correct. Um, they, they didn't know if he was involved in it or not involved in it. That's just something they noted. And when they were doing their crime scene search, they, they saw him drop something, and when they picked it up, it was an Armalite catalog, which they sell um, guns and, and scopes. So that, that was interesting. They, they uh, took that and had it fingerprinted, and they ran the fingerprints, only through the Alabama state fingerprint system instead of running it through the FBI. 
So it came up negative. They got nothing. So when we sent out this communication and asked police departments, did you have, have you had any um, cases that are similar to this? They responded back that they had and told us the story and that they had this catalog. So we immediately flew an agent down to Montgomery, Alabama to hand carry that catalog back to the FBI lab at Quantico. We re-fingerprinted it, we got the fingerprints off of it, and we ran it through the FBI system, which is all 50 states. And we got a hit back from um, Washington State, um, an NCIS uh, case, or an INS case, where uh, INS had been called to some sort of domestic disturbance. And this person whose fingerprints were on this catalog was at that domestic disturbance. He wasn't involved in it. He was just a party to it. And so he, it came back as Lee Boyd Malvo, and um, he was 18. And we ran him, and I asked him if they ran him in every state looking for a driver's license. They did. He didn't have a driver's license in any state. So we started with that INS case, and I sent somebody down to INS headquarters. We pulled the file. We started reading the file, finding out who was in it. The other person that was involved in that was um, John Muhammad. So now we have two names that it's kind of a similar type thing, interesting, and we, it's, it's like a ball of twine. You just start unraveling it. When, when this all started, when did it become critical? I mean, how many shootings were there in the D.C. area or wherever this area, these happened when it really became a huge news story? Well, there were um, at least four in one day. I don't, I don't, honestly, I don't remember exactly. There were at least four in one day, and they were all almost just in time with each other. They just went from one spot to the next spot to the next spot, all in Montgomery County. And for people that don't remember, these were random, right? I mean, this was just at a gas station, people out pumping gas, and people were just getting randomly shot guy, by this. Right, a guy Home Depot, was, Home Depot parking lot, sitting a, at a bus stop. A guy um, mowing the lawn on a riding lawnmower in front of a car dealership was shot that day. This woman at a bus stop waiting for the bus, reading a paperback book while she waited for the bus. Um, A woman at a gas station vacuuming out her van. Um, People pumping gas at the gas station. Mm. One one young lady was loading her... uh, Home Depot purchases into the trunk of her car, and she happened to be uh, an employee of the FBI, coincidentally. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. that, so that happened in, in Virginia that. Um, yeah. several days after the, after the initial shootings took place. So this goes from where you were to Alabama to Washington State, and you're getting connections. How were you able to connect the dots? Um, it, it all goes back to basically – what their MO was, what they were doing, those types of things. Um, and I would come home every night <laughs> and wake Steve up because I wouldn't get home until 2 or 3 in the morning and would tell him, okay, this is what we've got and this is what I think. I know it's these two guys. I just can't put them here. See, so I was part of it. Okay. He was. Just so you know. <laughs> he was. He was important to me. <laughs> he was very important. I'm glad you clarified that. <laughs> yeah. But actually, Arizona has a connection, and because uh, he did, they killed someone in Tucson, Arizona. Yeah, on they a did. Golf course. Yeah, yeah, on a golf course. Yeah, because um, Muhammad's uh, sister 
lived in Tucson at the time. And I, I tracked him on a Greyhound bus to Tucson. And then this guy gets randomly shot on a golf course with the same type of rifle. And then they get on a Greyhound bus and that um, bus driver has her purse stolen and her credit card or gas credit card was used in Tacoma, Washington to buy gas. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, for for them. Right. So um, there's all these little pieces that we put together. How did you finally connect them to where the shootings were happening? It was uh, um, an offline search. Uh, it's called a reverse NCIC. Okay. <clears throat> what is where, that? Where you run... So when police stop a vehicle, like when they stop you routinely, <laughs> they they run your license plate, right? And they they'll sometimes do an NCIC check, and that runs wants and warrants, is what it's called, ten twenty eight, and they'll run it uh, nationwide or maybe just locally, whatever. And uh, but uh, if they but once that's recorded, a reverse NCIC is running all the car stops that police officers oh, make okay. and see if they can match up a vehicle to the car stop. And, and that's so what you they did. ran yeah, so they ran yeah. her team ran a reverse NCIC and did all the car stops in the Maryland, Virginia area and because they had a description of the car at that time or no, what what did, did you have a uh, um they ran uh, they ran a red light they, they, got, ran, yeah. they got picked up on a red light camera. Yeah, they ran his name in a reverse NCIC. Wow. Yeah. And, and so that connected the car to that general right, right, area. Right, because we didn't have a car. I think it was in... When it first started, it came out as yeah. a white box truck. And so everybody was calling in on white box trucks. And if you start looking for white box trucks, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. That's, your, that's the mm-hmm. service that everybody mm-hmm. uses those. And so these poor guys that are driving white box trucks are getting stopped and pulled out at gunpoint and proned out on the street, and it was crazy. Yeah. So how did it finally end? It ended. Well, that, it. Was, that came right after they, uh, when they did, the uh, again, the reverse NCIC, right. and they read uh, Muhammad's name. And sure enough, in Montgomery County, Maryland, Silver Spring, I believe, he was stopped running a red light. Right. And as soon as Linda, because she had come home and it was 2 o'clock in the morning and she, she's on the phone, she gets a call and she looks at me. She goes, it's them because that put him in the area. Once they knew they were in the area, there was no question it was them. And it was a matter of hours. Before they were Once caught. we... Uh, Put them there. It was a matter of hours before they got stopped. And they had gone out to a um, rest area way out in uh, western Maryland. On Route 70. And they were they were just sleeping in their car. And a truck driver happened to pull into that truck stop. And he'd been listening to the radio. He knew that um, what was going on. And he knew what the car looked like and the tag number. And he saw it sitting in the back of the lot. And so he blocked the exit to the rest stop with his truck and called 911. Wow. Yeah. And so they arrested them. And did you ever have an opportunity to speak to either one of them? No. It was because your end was My, I'm not that part of it. Yeah. yeah. But what was, I mean, I, I guess either, both of you, because I'm going to ask you about a, a story that you've told me as well. But what is that like I mean, to be a part of something that big where you know innocent people are dying and it can happen again. But when you finally know that that person's in custody... Oh, it, it, what's that like, though? It, it it feels good. 
it was such a stressful time. It was, uh, I think, 21 days. It, it was a crazy time. And I was afraid to get gas. I was afraid right. to stop at the gas station because it happened to anyone. It was just random. And um, the, the woman that I told you about that was on my squad, we actually um, went to the Pentagon and got Marine snipers. And we vetted them to make sure that none of them were responsible for the shootings. Although, I mean, obviously, we were pretty sure they weren't. But still, you have to take that step to make sure that all of them have some sort of alibi for the time and dates that all these shootings happened. And then they took her and made her sit or stand in every spot where someone got killed. And they looked at it and said, okay, as a sniper, this is where I would have taken that shot from. This is where. And so we're trying to figure out how these people were thinking and exactly what their um, mentality was, if they'd had any training. I mean, we looked into all of that. Is it an asset, I mean, for both of you, all joking aside, was it an asset throughout your careers to be able to bounce stuff like that off each other at oh, home? Absolutely. It was for me, that's for it sure. It was for yeah. me. I could, yeah, yeah, yeah. We definitely. Now, are there situations where there's information that you can't share with each other about a case? Does that oh, ever happen? Oh, sure. For him all the time. Yeah. I mean, I worked in a, a classified world for a period of time in the 90s working counterintelligence and espionage, and I was working on cases. I wasn't even in the office. I was working someplace else. One of those stories, that's one of the stories I want you to tell me, about, tell us about is the, was it the highest level federal employee? Is that is that accurate? No. Highest ranking, sort of, highest ranking CIA case officer. That's so, ever been arrested right, so for espionage. For, for those who don't know the difference, FBI has special agents. CIA has case officers. Okay. So they're, they're they, they don't investigate. All they do is collect intelligence. They're, they're, they're spies in other countries. And, uh, yeah, and they're supposed to only work outside of the right, United correct. States. Right, correct. Yeah. So that I, much I knew. I yeah. knew that. I knew that was a to. designation. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they're case officers. So, and as they go up the chain, they remain case officers, but they can be branch chiefs and they can be different levels in management, some like the FBI does. So he was a he was a branch chief back at CIA headquarters in Langley. So he was the highest ranking case officer uh, ever arrested and convicted of espionage. So Jim Nicholson. I love this story only because it sounds like I, I always thought that if I saw a cop, I'd know a cop mm-hmm. from a mile away. And then I got to be around some cops that work undercover yeah. and thought they had me fooled and I knew they were cops. So I realized I knew a lot less than I thought I knew. Mm-hmm. But you actually were doing everyday mm-hmm. things, and it could have been just people out living their life normally, not understanding that they were this close to the case you were working on. Can you just kind of walk me through that story? Uh, the, the, the yeah, how you case? caught this guy yeah. and what he did. Yeah. So, um, you know, these cases start with a, a little piece of information. And uh, generally, you start with a broad. So working counterintelligence and working spy cases is a little bit different or to some a lot different than working criminal cases, because um, the the uh, the crime they're committing is espionage. Everyone gets caught up in spying and this word spy. Right. But the crime that they get charged with and convicted of is espionage. And so that's what you're looking for. Evidence of espionage and the, the Espionage Act uh, in Title 18. So um, th- every step you take is 
attempting to identify the person that is committing this act, um, whether it's surveillance, uh, technical surveillance or physical surveillance, but it's all usually based on a single bit of information that comes in that is very broad. Someone, the, the, the credible source of the information is saying that someone within the FBI, the CIA, whatever agency, DOD, um, is committing espionage. Well, where do you start with that, right? Every agency has thousands of employees, and uh, how do you – so you got to start picking away. Well, we started with an, about 160-something possible subjects. What was the information? Like, What was it that they were doing? Well, I, I probably can't get into that. Okay. All right. Um, but I'm already uh, asking questions yeah, you can't answer. Yeah. The, the, the bottom line is we, we the, the information indicated that there was one among I got the you. CIA. Okay. And, uh, and so based on the information, the little tidbits, uh, we could connect just for a number 160 that potentially could be it. But then you whittle out 40 or 50 of them that fast because there's one little piece they don't match up, and you whittle it down. We finally got down to about... Uh, 26 subjects and then um, we had to focus resources on 26 different people and that involved technical surveillance physical surveillance and so forth because they were this the information was they were active at what point though are you required to tell somebody in the CIA that you're investigating people in their agency uh, we, we we're pretty uh, tied at the hip at this point. Um, they they knew from the beginning uh, that there was an investigation going on, but right. there's got to be some pushback because no, nobody is. nobody well, wants to believe that anybody in their organization yeah. is like you wouldn't yeah. want to believe a fellow FBI agent right. was guilty yeah. of of espionage. Well, the same thing with or the, spying or whatever. Yeah. Although it's happened. Although yeah. it's happened. Um, <clears throat> the uh, the same thing happened with the Hansen case in the FBI. There was denial from within. And uh, although law enforcement in general, and you know this, whether it's a police department or the FBI, we eat our own. Mm-hmm. You go sideways inside a police department, the police aren't going to. Yeah, nobody hates a bad cop worse than a good cop. Exactly. Yeah. You, know, you say that <laughs> routinely, and it's true in the FBI, too. So you got information. You you get it down to a couple of dozen people. Right. How do you end up figuring out it's one guy, and then how do you get involved with this one guy? Um, well, we uh, things started to line up about where his assignments were around the world, and f- additional information starts to come in, and his locations around the world, and then we start doing our stuff, you know, our surveillance, our technical right. surveillance, and you know, he it, his personality was such that he was the smartest man in the room. No one was going to catch him. He was too smart. So he talked on the phone. He did things um, uh, that we watched him do. He thought he he couldn't imagine that the FBI was smart enough to catch him. And so he he was careless. So we monitored his phones. We monitored his activity. We monitored his monitored his office and so forth. And so we saw him doing things that we said, okay, we're pretty sure it's him. And it was interesting. There was one point where uh, we got information that he was going to meet. He was going to do a drop. So in the counterintelligence world, the way a drop works is he takes an envelope full of information 
and goes to a park, goes to some place in a rural area, wherever. It could be downtown, and uh, and drops it, and then goes and marks a, a pole, a hydrant, something that's immovable, something that's going to stay there. Then his handler, who drives by that pole every day and checks, sees that mark on the pole, and says, "Okay, the drop's been filled." So all the stuff we see in spy movies actually happens. That actually yeah. happens. that actually happens yeah. like that. Now that's called Russian tradecraft. So Chinese operate differently. The North Koreans operate differently. So when the you Iranians, see someone sit on a park bench and they tape something underneath, I mean yeah. that stuff actually happens. That actually happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. So, so he he we got information about a drop. <clears throat> that was going to be uh, done in a particular high-end rural part of Maryland. And uh, we actually spent 30 days monitoring that area. I mean, some high-end stuff for the time period and uh, some long physical hours 24-7 up there waiting for him to go up and do the drop. <clears throat> and we did it for 30 days, and uh, and we didn't see anything. I just tell that as a side story because, ironically, when we uh, finally arrested him, which we'll talk about yeah. um uh, and we did this subsequent interview. He admitted that, yeah, nah, you were you were right on because I was supposed to do a drop up there. And he said I didn't do it. And we we actually felt better that even though we spent yeah. a lot of money and a lot of hours, and he didn't do it. Did he ever we, explain why we he didn't miss him? Uh, I, I I forget the reason he didn't do it. He um, he notified his handler that he was didn't have time. He wasn't able to get up there. So how were you able to get the evidence? And then how did you eventually? Get him. So we, when we whittled it down, when we were pretty sure it's him, and you talk about uh, uh, the um, internal pushback, um, they, the case agent on this uh, particular case, on the Nicholson case, had a note type ta- uh, taped, uh, tacked into in his pod, because he was. A, we were out at a meeting out at the agency, and uh, one of the employees, when we said, we know it's Jim Nicholson. Uh, she sat there and she goes, there's no way it's Jim Nicholson. He wrote that down and quoted it and dated it and, <laughs> and stuck it in his pod. And, uh, and that was kind of his motivator because we knew it yeah. was him. And so that, um, so we, we were sure it was him. Now it's a matter of building evidence <clears throat> and what, uh, who's he talking to, what's he doing, and uh, what's his, his plan going forward. And uh, we had him under physical surveillance, and he rode through Falls Church, Virginia, and he walked up to a mailbox and dropped something in a mailbox. Well, we have a way of getting to that exact document, and and, a picture of it hangs in my office up at school, but it's a postcard. And he was sent a postcard to his friends looking forward to going skiing in Zurich. And so we knew his next meet was going to be in Zurich. So once we knew that, it was just a matter of monitoring his purchases, his plane flights. His, mm-hmm. And he was doing that through the agency. So it was easy to monitor because they keep track of who's their employees flying. They notified us he had just booked a trip from here to, from here to I think, Brazil to Sri Lanka <clears throat> to uh, Thailand to get married. And uh, the whole side story that was crazy, <laughs> but he was going to Thailand to get married, and then to Zurich to meet his handlers. And, uh, and what was the arrest like? Because didn't it get dicey? Wasn't there? Wasn't it at the airport? It was at the airport. So here's what happened. So we we um, I was very fortunate that they asked me to be the one to arrest him. I said, well, 
bring it on. I, so did they choose you because you were in charge of the case, or why, why were you chosen? I was not in charge of the case. It had two case agents. But a case like this, when it grows, the whole squad gets involved. Everyone's right. involved. Everyone's got a part. And so um, I became the, because of my criminal background, not my criminal background, I know. my <laughs> criminal investigation background. <clears throat> but uh, because of my background, they said, okay, Hooper, you're, you're going to handle the arrest and, and all the prosecution, working with the prosecution and all this. I said, sure, sounds good to me. I told the two case agents, I said, no, you're going to arrest them. And they go, no, 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 you're arresting them. It's this whole thing. Okay. Counterintelligence agents yeah. to criminal agents. I said, I, you don't have to ask me twice. I like arresting people, so uh, I have no problem, especially someone who's supposed to be the good guy and is the bad guy. And um, I said, okay, but I'll set it up so that you're putting the handcuffs on them, but I'll place them under arrest. So we went. We, I put this whole plan together, the ops plan, and briefed the bosses. Uh, Tenet was there, the director of the CIA and the FBI director. Uh, uh, Louis Free was there, and I did a briefing and on how we were going to arrest him. If you have you flown through Dulles, yeah, okay. So Dulles has the people movers. Mm -hmm. So there was discussion about should we arrest him on the people mover? He can't run away then. But then you're in an enclosed area. If there's if it's crowded, it can get ugly. So we're trying to f figure out the best way to arrest him. So we decided you, know, you take the people mover out to the terminal, to the jetways, and we'll arrest him there. Well, so we got out there ahead of time. He was under surveillance way far away, and we knew he was that's where he was ultimately going to get on the plane. Uh, so we were out there way ahead of time, and I'm, I'm walking the terminal looking for a good place to arrest him. How are we going to best do this? And then we were using the British Airways Executive Lounge as the command post because it overlooked the runway. And when I walked in there just to look at the command post, um, I looked out and I said, is that his plane? And it was one of those American Eagle. Yeah. They were a little puddle jumper up mm -hmm. to New York. Well, he was going to fly from Dulles to New York and then internationally. I said, oh, didn't know this. Because they have to walk out on the tarmac. He has to walk out on the tarmac. I go, change, change of plans. And I said, uh, I asked our airport liaison agent to get us to American Airlines baggage handler's jackets. Because when I looked down, the baggage rack was there mm -hmm. and there was this baggage handler she was standing there at the end of the rack and she had this american airlines jacket on i go perfect so i got two of those and it was me and one of my swat buddies who also was the tech guy who planted the microphones and cameras and so forth so uh i said you've earned part of this arrest too so um because he did an amazing job with the technical coverage and i said we're going to change it we're not going to arrest them in the um in the terminal, we're going to wait till they get down onto the tarmac because what's he going to do? Run across the tarmac if he tries to run? We didn't think he would run. Uh, and we can be down there waiting for him. And so that's what we did. And we threw on jackets, American Airlines, and I went and stood, stood at the baggage thing. An interesting side story is we took two agents, um, Buddy Lux and Lisa Martin, and we made them a couple. And their sole job was when he walked to the stairway to go down to the tarmac, their sole mission was to get right behind them. So he couldn't run away. So he, he couldn't, if he did, if he smelled a rat, he couldn't run back up the stairs. There's two agents waiting for him. Well, of course, they get in line and he's traveling. The irony is he was traveling with two young case officers. How'd you like to be them in their career now? <laughs> your first overseas mission as a case officer and your mentor gets arrested. By the FBI. But anyway, they got in line, and one of them 
turns around and says, oh, I, I got to go to the restroom. Buddy and Lisa had already gotten behind them. And now they've got to figure out yeah, yeah. How, how they're going to get out of line. Right. They got to get out of line while they step out of line and they can't go past him because now they're not. In, uh, so uh, um, they step back and they start arguing. And Buddy starts saying to Lisa, I told your mother, you told you your mother was going to be late. I tried to tell you your mother's going to be. They got in this argument over her mother so that they could delay. And the uh, case officer came back from the restroom. They got back in line. Lisa and Buddy got behind them, following him down the stairs. And it was kind of cool because Buddy, he's a surveillance guy. Uh, he's on the surveillance team. He, uh, he had a camera in his pocket. So we were told no pictures. He took out a camera. <laughs> the whole thing's on film. Does it, what is it? Is it about your ability in the FBI, your ability to surveil someone or his lack of ability to smell the rat that a trained professional like him never saw this coming? Again, his personality, <clears throat> I didn't, obviously I didn't know him, didn't know anything about him from my perspective. The case agents probably knew this, a deeper dive into him as personality. I didn't know his personality until I actually put hands on him to arrest him. Because when he came down the stairs, <clears throat> I knew that he, we knew he didn't suspect a thing. So I played on that, and I was standing next to the luggage rack. And as he walked by me, I just yelled his name with a big smile on my face. Because I knew he'd, his ego, would that would feed his ego. Mm -hmm. So he turned and looked at me with a big smile. I said, Jim Nicholson. He he thought he was a celebrity, and he goes yes, and he walks right over to me, and that's when I showed him my creds, and I said it's over, Jim, you're under arrest, and uh, he couldn't believe it. I, I remember, I can still see his face. He couldn't speak, he couldn't speak because his brain just was turned to mush because he couldn't believe that he got caught. How long did he end up going to prison for? He's still in prison. There's a whole secondary. I know. Story. I know. You there's know about, about his this. son, right? Yes. Yeah. He got he got 23 years, uh, a 23 year sentence. Uh, we don't know why he, uh, he didn't get life, but 23 years. Um, and then while he was in prison, his uh, his son had joined the military, had all kinds of problems in the military, broke his legs, and never got to special forces, and got depressed, and came out was unemployed. And would go visit his dad in prison, and his dad uh, connected him with his Russian handlers from prison. And uh, so, again— And corrupted the, his son. Right, but for the audience, how does that work? Well, how could he commit espionage? He was no longer in the military. He doesn't have access to information. How could he—what he, what he was meeting the Russians and telling them were details on mistakes that the dad made and why they got caught so they could correct so it was more of operational type briefings mm -hmm. he was giving to the russians so a lot of people have asked that uh what did his son know that he could get arrested for the son that got arrested but then he was never charged and he was uh, uh he was never brought to trial he was he was duped by his old man and so they tacked another eight years on so he he's going to He'll be pretty old when he gets out. But uh, so, what happened to the two in your case? What? What? How long are they in prison? Are they still? What happened with those two? They both went to trial in Virginia, and um, Mohammed was executed. Yep, I remember that. And uh, Malvo was resentenced, but his resentencing is the same. It's life without parole. 
And so he's going to he'll be in prison for in a federal prison for the right. rest of his life. Right. Um, there are so many more stories. I want to do more episodes of this with you guys. But before we close this one out, um, what is it like watching each other work? When you watched her at work, did it ever become what was it like watching her work? Because there were times you did work together. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> well, it was the, the, the first time was when we were brand new agents and. She was going to arrest a bank robber, and she was getting set up. She sent me to the back door. <laughs> the back window. Back window was the door. door. She goes, "Yeah, you go around back. You go around back." So you watched her kick in the front door. Yeah. So I'm looking through the window, and sure enough, here she comes, first one through the door. It's an old style motel. Yeah, you one know, of those where old, you park right you out know, in front, yeah. so the room's tiny yeah. and it's got a back. So window. I see the the door kick open, and she's the first one through, and she's. Draws down on them and locks them up. And I'm... Did that take some getting used to? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and what about for you? I mean, you knew the job and how dangerous it could be. Did that add to the worry for him? Yeah, because he was always involved with SWAT. We were on one arrest, and it was, again, it was a bank robbery. And uh, it was in a, a parking lot of a supermarket on a Friday afternoon. So everybody's at the supermarket. And... We're out there, guns drawn and everything, focused on this bank robber. There was another guy in the car that the bank robber had gotten out of. And it still amazes me what the public does. They're like at the front window of the supermarket. That would not be me. Right. I would be ducking and covering someone. But no, they're like right up there. And somebody, somebody yelled. Somebody yelled. One of us yelled. And it was like nothing I'd ever heard before. And when we got back to the office, I said, who was that yelling out there? I didn't even recognize his voice. Wow. Well, the the second guy had gotten behind us. And so we were focused on the car, and someone yelled, he's behind you. And I turned around, I had the shotgun. And I turned around, and he was standing behind us. Wow. My adrenaline went through the roof. And so I told him to get down several times and uh that's what she heard and yeah so I said, well maybe hopefully you'll never hear that voice again so. well bef- what what that leads me to now before we close it out is the two of you together have started a company advising school districts and companies on security uh so these stories are amazing to hear but all of those years of experience you're now using it to help people understand is it threat assessment is it all of the above with threat assessment and how you handle a threat what is it yeah it's it's crisis management it's uh a proactive approach the 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 skill set of approaching someone who might be doing something uh uh uh, showing behavior that um, might indicate or indicates that he might be planning to do something that's one skill set that we bring just from the years of experience. But I think it's from the change in the FBI post 9-11 to a prime. That's why we named it Tripwire. That's actually an official term within the FBI. It's a program. And it's a uh, and that's the company Tripwire Security Solutions. But we we talk about uh, doing a taking a proactive approach and not waiting till someone is about to commit a crime or not waiting simply to respond if it happens here. And you hear that at schools all the time. Are we, are we going to be okay if it happens here? How about you don't let it happen there? 
because the indicators of someone doing something at your school are two-pronged. One is you know who it is already. It's someone connected to the school. It's a student. It's a parent. It's a faculty member. It's someone you already know. And it's the, the interesting, the looks we get at the schools when we're talking. And I go, just so you know, everyone in this room, someone, if it's going to be someone shooting the school, look around. It might be someone you know already. And if it's not a student, it could be, a, again, a parent or a faculty member. That's one. And uh, the other thing is uh, taking proactive steps and recognizing that those concerning behaviors that are starting to bubble up from when they're this low. You know, there's just someone said something. Well, address what they said. Don't wait for the other. Oh, that's just boys being boys. Address it early on. So a proactive approach and understanding that the person going to commit the crime on your campus, in the case of schools, or at the business, in the case of a uh, workplace, uh, is someone you already know. Oh, isn't it true that in a number of these shootings that have happened, um, let's say the schools, because that one seems to be the one people remember the most, that some of the students would say, we knew if it happened who it was going to be. Right. I mean, you, you see it on the news all the time after any sort of incident like that happens, and they interview people, and their response is, I, I knew it was going to be him. Okay, then why didn't anyone take any steps before this happened? The indicators start at least six months before the event. People always say, well, he just snapped. No. They don't just snap. They, it's a slow bubble, and they start six months, at least six months before, and there's indicators of things going on where people could intervene this entire time. And you can't prove a negative. So if they did intervene, you don't know that it's not going to happen. But certainly if you intervene, that person is now put on notice that people are watching him. They're paying attention to what he's doing. They're listening to what he's saying, he or she. And uh, and we can bring one home to Arizona, the Gabriel Gifford shooting. Yeah, and uh, Jared Loeffner. Jared Loeffner, right? And uh, just the one story when we interviewed Jared Loeffner, and I was the unseen commander down there. When we interviewed him, um, what interviewed one of the his classmates at uh, the community college? She said that she started sitting in the first row, front desk, right by the door with her purse on her lap, and she would take notes. And we said, why would you do that? She said, because I knew someday he would snap, and I wanted to be able to just run out the door. Wow. So if the student recognized this, where was the teacher? Yeah. Where was the school? Yeah. Wow. Um, Those indicators are there. People just need to start paying attention. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, I just I, we have to stop, but I I want to do more of these because the stories you tell are so compelling. Um, one of the things that's great about this is again we call this these podcast amazing Arizonans. You guys live in Arizona now. You teach up at Embry Riddle. Um, you're the next generation of intelligence gatherers and officers. Um, but it's cool that you're here in the state to tell these stories, the connections you have to Arizona. That's the point here. And for the people listening, it just I get to sit around with you guys all the time and hear you tell these stories. And I appreciate you telling them again. And I want to do more of this. So uh, I hope you'll do it again. Gladly. Thank, Thank you. you, Mike. Thanks. Discover more amazing Arizonans with Mike Broomhead at KTAR.com, the KTAR News app, or wherever you get your podcasts.